So welcome to episode five and the final instalment of the Rise and Edge DNA podcast first series with me, Richard Kutcher, and our host of the pod, Owen Dacey, Head of Claims at Rising Edge. Owen, first of all, I should say, I, I think I should say, Merry Christmas. We made it. How does it feel? Feels good. Yeah, we did a thing, which is which I'm very proud of. Uh, no, as always, Richard, you know, what a blessing you are and glad tidings to your jolly soul. Thank you very much. Good to hear. We've ticked off uh, US securities litigation, ESG, UK derivative actions and cyber. All great Christmas gifts in this first series so far. And today we are getting into UK regulatory investigations and enforcement actions and some risk mitigation and preparation efforts important for directors and officers to consider in advance of such events. Now, Owen, regulatory actions doesn't necessarily jump off the page as, as being super exciting but in fact by the sounds of what we're about to hear they they can be quite dramatic events can't they yeah absolutely i, I think in my view that you know they they are the the most dramatic another top concern for directors and officers and these types of events can have a devastating impact upon the individuals involved and so again just think it's important to try and help people and companies mitigate their risk in this area so who do we have joining us then to talk us through regulatory enforcement actions and the risk mitigation strategies? So we've got Richard Berger. Richard is a partner and co-head of corporate investigations at the law firm DWF. And Richard does actually begin by telling us a little bit about his background in this area. Well, I've been very fortunate to be on both sides of the regulatory fence. I was a trained and qualified as a criminal defence lawyer. Then I went to the regulator, and in fact I've been at two regulators, so the Financial Conduct Authority, then as the Financial Services Authority, and then the regulator for accountants, the Financial um, Reporting Council. I've also been house in-house as a head of risk and legal compliance for a Lloyd's managing agent. Great, thank you. And we're going to move on to the specific topic for today, which is the Serious Fraud Office. Starting at a high level, could you just outline for us who they are, what they do and what their what their purpose is, what the legal framework is around the SFO? Yes, yeah, so the Serious Fraud Office was created in the 1980s and it's a dedicated law enforcement investigation and prosecution agency looking at complex fraud. Back in the 70s and 80s, there a number of cases that didn't really go the distance um, because they didn't have dedicated specialists. And that's why the Serious Fraud Office was uh, created uh, to deal with these very complicated and very lengthy cases. And this is an agency that is made up of uh, investigators, some appointed at the SFO and some seconded from police forces. Uh, forensic accountants um, and more so forensic analysts who look at cyber and data uh, because in any SFO investigation there's always a huge amount of data that needs to be uh, recovered and analysed. So these are specialists that can look at uh, servers and telephones etc. And then you have a series of investigative lawyers who support the investigators and then you also have prosecution lawyers. Uh, the SFO will use external barristers um, for their very large trials and they'll also bring in secondees, some from industry so they can better understand certain sectors um, but also from law firms and accountancy practices. So it's been around for several years now. It's been up and down in terms of its press as to its success on cases uh, and whilst uh, the name suggests it focuses on serious fraud, of late it also is focusing 
uh, on corruption and bribery with the introduction of the Bribery Act, making it a corporate offence um, in 2010-2011. Uh, the SFO is seen as sort of lead investigator, in my experience, lead investigator for offences of corporate bribery. So they have quite a wide mandate based in the City of London, but of course stretch across the whole of the United Kingdom and do have an international focus. So that's high level, who they are, um, what they do. Could you run us through what the the current regime looks like, who's in charge and what you know, what their current activities levels are like, where their focus is? Yes, obviously we've been through the pandemic and so we've seen a lot of agencies have a pause in their activity because of, of all the restrictions we've been operating under. But what we see of, of late is that there are dedicated teams looking at quite a range of activity and I break that down. So they're looking at uh, corporate bribery so investigating corporates accused of um, failing to control within their businesses elements of bribery and corruption. That's where consultants or employees or members of staff have committed acts of bribery or corruption to try and win or retain business for that corporate. So there's a dedicated team looking at bribery, which is an international aspect. There are those looking at corporate fraud, and there is some uh, moves to try and make it a criminal offence uh, to fail to counter the risks that you as an institution or a corporate haven't allowed fraud to happen and we'll wait to see whether that legislation finds its way through the, the uh, through Parliament. But we have uh, instances of teams within the SFO uh, looking at corporate fraud. There are then uh, teams looking at straightforward fraud by, in, by individuals who have uh, stolen from their employers and the corporates and from um, retail customers and investors. Um, they then also provide assistance to um, overseas law enforcement agencies in their inquiries. And then there are dedicated teams at the SFO looking at the proceeds of crime, trying to recover um, proceeds of crime um, from organised crime um, networks and also those who have been convicted of uh, serious fraud. So the SFO has a director which is appointed every sort of four, six, seven years. Uh, the current director, Lisa Oroski, has been in post for I think it's coming up to four or five years. Uh, she is a uh, former US lawyer um, and I think she has, uh, as we have seen, tried to um, introduce some of the US Department of Justice approach to uh, complex fraud investigations. And what I mean by that is that in the US you can have effectively plea deals uh, struck between a prosecutor and individuals and more so with corporates. And here in the United Kingdom we have deferred prosecution agreements, which is almost a session in itself. But in short, uh, corporates, not individuals, but corporates can reach an agreement uh, with the Serious Fraud Office. Uh, that agreement needs to be endorsed by a judge. Um, who will scrutinise the agreement, but it can avoid a prosecution for a corporate, but they enter into a series of restrictions and conditions with the Serious Fraud Office with the endorsement of the court, and that would be paying financial penalty, redress, uh, possibly entering into a remediation scheme uh, and being subject to some form of compliance monitoring. And so we've seen um, the SFO really uh, expand out their activities in deferred prosecution agreements and um, reaching quite a number of settlements in the last few years. But their current activity at the moment, uh, post the pandemic, seems to be picking up 
on a number of the investigations which paused when their investigators weren't allowed to go and meet people I and mean, it was quite difficult to recover data because of course everyone needs to be very careful so we see quite a flurry of activity at the moment we are certainly looking at cases where the SFO are conducting investigations into alleged offences of corporate uh, corruption and bribery and also complex fraud. So I suspect over the next 18 months we'll see quite an uptick in investigative action as they, as a number of regulatory agencies, play catch-up, bearing in mind that the activities paused over 2020 and parts of 2021. And so talking about impact of COVID-19 and, and that impacting what the SFO is doing with the backlog and catching up, do you, do you expect to see many investigations into COVID-19 related misconduct? I, I do. Whether or not they will be sufficiently large and complex to trouble the serious fraud office, probably wait to see. My prediction is the sort of COVID fraud will be lower, lower scale. Uh, and that and the burden of investigating that and prosecuting prosecuting those types of offences will fall to uh, regional police forces and regional crown prosecution officers with the CPS Crown Prosecution Service. Those agencies are already really stretched. Police forces or uh, police services are under huge pressures. Um, so whether or not um, COVID fraud will touch the sides of their activity, we'll wait to see. I think, however, if it's um, fraud on the government. Um, that would be of particular interest and I imagine the SFO will be speaking to government about their role in trying to recover fraudulent claims by businesses under, for example, furlough schemes um, and anything that um, has uh, targeted the NHS. And of course, the NHS has its own counter-fraud uh, team, but I can imagine there'll be interagency corporations to try and go against those who have targeted our NHS. So I don't see it necessarily being a mandate for the serious fraud office, but I can certainly see regional police forces and NHS counter-fraud being quite uh, busy looking at COVID fraud type cases. We like to talk about, if we can, real life examples on the podcast with the purpose being, you know, see what we can extract in terms of learning learning points for people. Could you run us through sort of a real example, you know, what happens on the ground when, when the investigation kicks off? How do you get the call? Who, who are you, what steps are you taking at the beginning? So when I get the call, it's usually uh, a director or a company secretary saying an agency's at our door and they've already started going through documents. They want to ask lots of questions. Um, it may be that client is a witness and the agency, the SFO or another regulatory agency has just used its statutory powers to recover documents. Um, but it does feel for those types of organisations that they're under investigation, or in fact, they could be a corporate suspect. So it's usually a first call that these agencies are on board. And I'll come on to how we support um, corporates and the directors in a moment. But let's just track back from that first phone call. So that agency, let's say the serious fraud office, would have spent weeks, if not months, in the planning before they arrive at the client's offices or factory to seize documents and possibly to conduct interviews. They could have been investigating the case for years um, and they could have had that case referred to them by another um, regional police force or from an overseas law enforcement agency. So this case has already gone through many stages that are unknown to the corporate and its directors. The actual stage of conducting a raid uh, takes a lot of effort for any agency. 
not only are they exercising the statutory powers, but they are exposing their members of staff, so they have to do lots of risk assessments. Those agencies want to make sure that their staff are safe. There's lots of logistical things. Who's got the right van to lift the, you know, to take the documents away? Who's got the right expertise to go and look at a server, etc. So these things take quite some time in the planning. It doesn't, doesn't happen overnight. That said, the Serious Fraud Office and fraud squads across the country can react quickly. And certainly when I've reported fraud, when my clients have been the victim of fraud, I was very impressed how quickly, for example, the City of London Police reacted. They conducted a raid later that afternoon because the intelligence we provided um, satisfied um, their level of interest to conduct a raid. But usually with the Serious Fraud Office or other agencies such as the Financial Conduct Authority, the raid, as I said, is many weeks and months in the planning. So they already have quite a lot of intelligence and probably will have a good understanding of what's happened, but they need to get inside the business and seize documents and speak to the corporate and its staff and its agents and contractors. So let's sort of go forward. The raid has happened and the officers have presented themselves uh, to the reception desk. Hopefully that reception desk has a dawn raid policy and knows what to do and what they should be doing is phoning the directors and then the directors should have received some training on what to how to respond and their response should be to speak to their lawyers. Now that could be their company lawyers who may not have expertise in dealing with regulatory investigations, although lots of firms um, across the UK now have that expertise in-house or they will know a good regulatory investigation law firm that can respond on behalf of their corporate. In my experience, it's good to work alongside the corporate lawyers because they understand the corporate and, and the pressures on that business and the regulatory lawyers know how to respond to the law enforcement agency. So the starting point is to have the engagement to find out exactly what the officers are there to do, to see their powers, be it a warrant or a production order, to work out what they're going to seize. Because there's no point giving an agency a set of documents which is outside the scope of their investigative notice. There's usually a relevant period. It's between X date that they're conducting the investigation. Usually that date is quite historic, but you need to put some parameters around what the officers will seize. That said, you shouldn't obstruct the officers, but you should you know, put a few markers down if you feel that they're seizing documents which are not relevant to their investigation. And certainly they may be seizing documents which are privileged. So those documentation may be sitting on a, on a director's desk. He or she may be in the middle of a M&A deal and there may be corporate advice from the corporate lawyers about that deal. Um, that may be a privileged document or there may be quite substantive litigation pending. There have certainly been many instances where corporates have been involved in civil litigation with Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. That's almost a podcast in itself. But that then becomes a criminal investigation. Now, should the HMRC investigators have sight of the legal opinions and legal advice in relation to the civil case? Probably not. So uh, there needs to be uh, advice to the business of how to respond to the document request from the law enforcement agency and how to assert rights of privilege. The other big consideration is lifting data. Now, most agencies are very sophisticated now and they completely understand that you can't go in and just shut down a server room. You will destroy a business within seconds. Uh, and they're very sophisticated enough to uh, take images from the server, but there has to be a dialogue between the corporate's IT function and the cyber security or the cyber investigators that are on site with the investigation raid team. 
And if there is a misunderstanding or a disagreement about how the image could be taken of the server, lawyers need to be involved in that discussion. It may be an external firm needs to be brought in to assist because the last thing you want is disruption to the business in terms of its server being affected because that would stop the business from trading. What does it look like then when you're bringing in those external lawyers? Are you, are you literally arriving on site and you're, you're there doing the kind of working yes, it out there? Yeah. Absolutely. So you're taking the phone call and I always make it my um, first to try and speak to the officer in the case. There's always a lead inv- investigator. He or she will be reporting to a command off-site and this will be people back at the serious fraud office who are overseeing the the raid but you need to speak to the uh, investigator lead investigator and say look we're here to help but we need time to respond of course those officers are working against their own time limits you've got people on overtime etc and people can't be working through the night so they will be very conscious of the need to uh, move their inquiries along so it's about having dialogue and then what we try and do is get someone to the client site as soon as possible so maybe someone jumping in a car or in one instance even someone jumping into a helicopter but uh, it's important to be on site because once the officers start their review it is incredibly helpful to have someone follow the officers not to obstruct them but to note down what documents they're taking because everyone always forgets where a set of documents was placed is it in someone's drawer but also to negotiate the imaging of the server, for example, if that does involve bringing on board some external um, IT consultants. So it's good to have someone on board. And most agencies will wait a few hours, as long as they can see um, direction of travel, for a lawyer to attend. But that lawyer will be on the phone talking to the officer as they conduct their inquiries. So talking about disruption to the business, and that leads leads into the lawyer trying to get on site. It's very disruptive for the business suddenly to have um, these investigators walking around. Sometimes they'll be plainclothes. Sometimes they'll have uniformed officers in support. The plainclothes officers will probably have their badges of identification. They may be wearing a tabard that identifies them at the SFO or the National Crime Agency. Uh, and that's really big news for a corporate. And uh, staff can be very uh, stunned by this. It can be very distracting for them. They can be very worried about what's going on. That in itself can attract media interest. And we have had instances where members of staff have decided to start tweeting you know, I've had a really interesting morning and the serious fraud office have arrived. That can be very damaging for a business because you, this is about containment. This could be the very early stages in an investigation which f- just fizzles out. But people will judge a business if there are liveried police vehicles parked outside their offices. So in terms of the dawn, dawn raid training, making sure that members of staff know that, that support is there from the management team, the board, that the board have instructed lawyers to support them, that they should not be talking about this investigation to anyone, not even members of their family, and that the the company will respond to this in an orderly way. It's about trying to contain the news that there's a raid, because this disruption to the business can be quite significant. It's just got me thinking about PR uh, PR consultants as well. Do you you see them 
sometimes evolve in that very early stage as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you. We do. And there are a number of these PR consultants who specialise in this particular area. A lot of them are ex-investigators themselves or have been, at, for example, the criminal bar. And so they're very good at managing um, the relationship with the press, monitoring what the press are having to say about this and, and, and supporting the board with a commentary. There's always seems to be some pressure on the board to say something, but actually sometimes the best thing is to say nothing at that stage. What I'm getting is essentially it's all about planning. I mean, having the plans in place, basically, if you're, if you're going to deal with this in an effective way. Can you give us any sort of insight on what it's like for an individual who then becomes a target as well? What's, what's going on for them? Yes, absolutely. So just coming on your point about plan, of the, obviously the agencies had their plans for weeks and months in advance and the corporate is planning now on, on the run. Um, not running away from the agency, but as the matter is unfolding. And what can also happen during those inquiries is that the uh, law enforcement agency wants to actually detain and take someone away. They might want to interview individuals. Now, they may want to interview those individuals using their their statutory powers in the terms, in the sense of the serious fraud office is known as a Section 2 power. So the person is not necessarily a suspect, but they are they are interviewed under compelled powers by the serious fraud office, or someone is interviewed under caution, and that's where they treat it as a suspect. And for the individual, that is a significant event. Um, it doesn't happen to us all, um, and for those of us who have been regulatory criminal defence lawyers for 20, 25 years, you have to remind yourself that um, for every individual client, being interviewed, being detained, being taken away to a police station to be answered, asked questions, or just being taken into a separate office to be asked questions in front of a microphone where your, your answers are being recorded is very, very stressful. And so I think the real value add of having lawyers on board at a very early stage is that they can support that individual. Now, there may be a potential conflict of interest the law firm acting for the corporate that may actually just be the victim or witness to um, fraud or bribery and then also acting for the individual who may be accused of stealing from the company or committing bribery which has caused the company to commit an offence. So in that regard um, we may suggest that the corporate instruct independent lawyers from a panel that we can recommend and therefore the individual has legal representation. Once an individual has independent legal uh, advisor, uh, hopefully that can start alleviating some of the stress and concern they feel. But this is a very long and drawn out process uh, and individuals can be greatly affected by um, the initial arrest of in- uh, arrest and an interview. And then unfortunately, because of the pressures on many agencies, law enforcement agencies, things take a very long time. The fact that they are held in limbo for many weeks, months, if not years, pending the outcome of the investigation. And for the corporate, that has many challenges because you have a member of staff that's very distracted. Um, you also need to try and work out from HR perspective uh, what, what are the next steps. So we've gone through what it's like when one of these um, events happens and it's just, yeah, it's great insight. In terms of risk mitigation, and we've touched a bit on plans, could you, uh, within this context, when we're thinking about regulatory investigation, enforcement action, exposures for directors and officers, could you sort of run through your top three mitigation behaviours or strategies that directors and officers can implement that might mitigate their risk in this in this area? Yes, I mean, it's quite a broad 
uh, topic if you think about it because um, the risks that a director could face or director and officer could face are anything ranging from health and safety but let's focus on the actions of the serious fraud office they're looking at complex fraud and bribery and corruption and that could affect a director and officer either as a witness or as a suspect if they are treated as a suspect then it's more likely that they're going to be under uh, DNO directors and officers policy for coverage uh, for representation and looking through my sort of archives of where directors have done a good job to try and mitigate the risk and actually being quite proactive so that the case against them has been discontinued at a very early stage what I see there are directors being quite proactive in their just day-to-day life what I mean by that is that they've been quite challenging when they've been presented potential risks by other parts of the business where the responsibility may lie at their door. So they have asked for further information that's been presented to them at the board. They've asked for a risk assessment. So if, for example, uh, we are um, going to expand into an overseas territory, are there any particular bribery risks? So a starting point is to actually do a risk assessment, almost like a personal risk assessment. So what is my responsibility as a director? Now in the financial services sector, you have statements of responsibility because that regulator is looking at individual responsibility uh, across a board, be it the chief financial officer through to the CEO. And you can draw lessons from that in the non-financial sector, engineering, printing, whatever the sector you may be in, uh, by looking at undertaking a risk assessment against your job description. So what are your responsibilities? And staying on top of your job description. So if you are promoted, how's that been recorded? So you don't have to keep looking back if you're under inquiry to work out what exactly your role was. So it's quite good to keep a little pack of your own papers of your own job description and what risks you felt you faced and how you address those risks. There's quite a lot of training and advice out there, for example, the Institute of Directors or talking to yourselves so to educate yourself as a director on what risks you may face. So the starting point is a sort of mini risk assessment and then you can actually uh, adapt your circumstances to the risks. The second area I've seen directors be very proactive, which has enabled them to explain to an agency why they're not culpable for any alleged criminal conduct, is note-taking. So those who make very detailed notes or very comprehensive notes at board meetings, so they can evidence what they were told and what they did with that information. I'm not suggesting that someone should start sort of dictating long attendance notes because you wouldn't be able to do your day job and it would seem rather self-serving to be carrying around a special notebook recorded all your actions but be able to refer to your notes and your recollection of sort of key events even if that's just an email to the company secretary and say there was a board meeting today or there was a a mini exco meeting and this matter was discussed and just want to record i was concerned with you know, we're expanding into the new territory. I'd like to make sure that we're looking at you know the risk assessments, etc. I feel my responsibility is is up to this point. Now that may seem self-serving, but you're being proactive as a director. You're trying to protect your position, but more importantly, you're trying to protect the business. I always feel in these situations, there's there's a lot of people out there that aren't the bad actors, and I think there's a lot lot to be said for basically creating a record of why, like just like you've said, like why, how, what, so that when you get the ask the question, the answer isn't. 
um, well, we, you know, it was obvious at the time we did it. Well, where's the record or whatever? You know, it doesn't exist. Well, so you just, yeah, it, it's kind of getting ahead of it and um, making a record to help yourself later down the line, I guess. I think that um, that has saved a number of the directors that we've, we've worked with and we've been able to be very proactive. I use that word quite a lot, proactive defence. You're innocent until proven guilty, but if you can be proactive and show an agency that this person is not liable, it can really bring the investigation swiftly to an end. But there are real challenges in making such a note because looking with benefit of hindsight, one always kicks themselves, I should have made a better note or I should have had a note taken. And these things always seem to crop up when that particular individual is under huge pressure. There's an M&A deal or something going on in their personal life. They've just had their wife's just had a baby or they've just had a baby. And, you know, there are lots of things going on and th- th- there are difficulties in, in just carrying a constant note. But once you install a sort of discipline uh, of just recording a few notes or even just emailing yourself or emailing, say, the company secretary, it sort of even a, a few sentences could be could pay huge dividends if there was ever an inquiry. And of course, a lot of SFO inquiries and fr- frankly, uh, revenue and financial conduct authority inquiries can be very historic so we're advising clients who are being asked to remember some things that happened five six ten years ago and if you think about your own personal life you could be sending so your personal your professional life you could be sending hundreds of emails a day and even one email some wording on that could be the subject to a whole series of inquiries by an agency but what i'm not advocating is people suddenly to drop the drawbridge and not get on and, and act as as good directors and, and maintain um, a good professional uh, practice within their corporate life because they feel inhibited, but they need to lean on businesses to provide them support. And I suppose my third and final area, I know this sounds very self-serving, but taking out DNO policy. Now, what I mean by that is knowing that someone else is going to hopefully pay for your legal representation or even just pay for someone to manage the data that you need to review to respond to an SFO or FCA inquiry or that there's someone out there that might help you with PR, you're speaking to the media, um, can take a huge burden off an individual who's under investigation. And I've seen some policies provide uh, medical support and assistance because it can be very stressful. Um, some counselling for family members because of course if your mother or father was reported in the local newspaper that they've been arrested for fraud that's really big news for the, you know, the children of that family they're going to be teased about it at school um, so this gets down to the personal level um, so having some form of protection that gives you uh, cover regarding the costs and possibly some sort of counselling and support to the family just takes huge pressure off and the individuals under investigation very few individuals can pay privately for um, a long-term and criminal investigation or regulatory investigation into a part of their professional life Um, and obviously there are huge pressures pressures on legal aid and legal aid really isn't going to fund uh, an individual director under investigation. Actually, when you talk about how long into the past these things can go, and I just think immediately about the cost consequence, you know, the amount of documents that can be involved. So the expense can be huge, right? So I'd obviously agree with you on that. The other thing I agree, and something that's come out for me is just, and again, we're, we're, we're always dealing with it after the event, right? So we've got, we've got good hindsight, but... Yes, you've got your corporate lawyers, but who, who in the event that something, someone does come in, who's going to be your white-collar defence lawyer? Like, do they have that within there? Are there going to be conflicts? And just the more people can think about that in advance, the better equipped they'll be able to deal with it when if something bad does happen. And that could be built into the uh, Dornray policy. So a uh, final anecdote from me, a colleague of mine was delivering Dornray training 
and someone came through and interrupted the training session and said, I don't know whether this is really great, you know, great part of training, but there's some guys have turned up to do a dawn raid. And the guy delivering the training said, well, they're not actors. I haven't arranged that and went out to the reception and it was an agency conducting a dawn raid. It just so happened he was on site uh, doing the dawn raid training to the board perfect timing because he could deal with it immediately create the dawn raid training give people some training it's ready it's in a drawer that may include a list of uh, law firms that can jump on this sometimes you see law firms written into policies sometimes there's a number that can be read or wrong like a crisis response number that's open 24 7 and someone can jump on the phone and start advising the company and the director how to respond Well, thank you to Richard for a great way to end the first series of the Rising Edge DNO podcast, all about regulatory investigations and enforcement actions in the UK. Owen, there was a lot to digest and take in there, especially for someone like me who is very new to this world and, and those types of stories. As ever, what were your key takeaways from that? Yeah, so firstly, the main theme to come out for me on this um, when speaking to Richard is uh, and thinking about the DNO exposures is it comes down to a very, very personal level. And it's it's one thing being named in a, as a defendant, maybe in a lawsuit with the company. It's quite another thing to be in a room with police officers, maybe a microphone, being asked questions about things that happened years ago. And, and you know, it can have a serious impact on individuals concerned and their families. So, so why not consider, and I love Richard's suggestion on this, is carrying out your own personal risk assessment um, in respect of your role, your responsibilities, and how you go about managing those risks. And as Richard says, you know, he thinks, this is this sort of thing and note-taking is safe directors he's acted for secondly just remember that when agencies regulatory bodies when they when they arrive or send the letter requesting an interview they've had the benefit of months years if not years of investigations and planning so again give yourself a chance avoid having to make too many decisions when you're in the eye of the storm as such and and plan as much as you can in advance, perhaps via a, a dawn raid plan or something similar. And that might include, with the conflicts of interest point in mind, a list of white-collar defence lawyers, because obviously what we've heard, their presence on the ground immediately is critical for dealing with something like this in an orderly fashion. Thirdly, think about employees and potential, again, for misinformation and, and reputation. And I think this comes down to education and training for staff and also thinking about perhaps lining up PR consultants for when you might have to deal with an incident like a dawn raid. And finally, people would be so bored and you're probably completely bored of me saying it as well. It's just come up again and it's the discipline of note taking and creating a record. Because I often think, you know, people are doing the right thing and they're trying to do the right thing but when it comes to evidencing it 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 can it can cause an issue it may seem self-serving but it's a good practice and and may help in the event of a a claim or investigation yeah amen to that and it does come up and it has come up in almost every episode i think regarding that that note taking i think it's just good practice generally business-wise i'm sure i should be doing more of it not that i'm probably uh, about to be sued for anything but who knows um but on that note that brings an end to the rising edge dna podcast for 2021 if you have just discovered the pod for the first time and you are keen to hear more then please do not fret because you can hear our full back catalog on any podcast platform apple podcast 
Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, CastBox. We are on them all and many, many more. Just give us a search and hit follow or subscribe to make sure all future episodes are downloaded straight to your device. Owen, we're signing off for now, but hopefully we'll be reunited in the new year. Yeah, thanks, Richard. It's been great fun. See you on the other side. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to listeners and stay well and see you in 2022.